and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The church is more than an ancient social network, though it does serve a social need. Our connection to Christ can and must go deeper than just friends and likes. Teaching team member Bob Cargo finishes the series Pictures of Jesus with this message entitled, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine which covers John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6, and chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, and 9 to 14. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Let me introduce myself in case you're brand new here at the church. My name is Bob Cargo. I'm the director of church planting and also on the teaching team. It's my privilege to uh, bring God's word to you today. And let me sort of set things up for that. We're in the last week of a five-week series called Pictures of Jesus. It's all from the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And in the gospel of John, seven times Jesus makes statements about himself that are metaphorical. I am this and this and this and this and this. And for us, we would see these statements and say, well, that's an interesting analogy or metaphor or whatever. Uh, But for the people that heard Jesus originally, for his first uh, Jewish hearers, these things were astounding because as Jeff has pointed out and Caleb has pointed out already in this series, in all of these things, Jesus was claiming divinity and it stopped people in their tracks. And all seven of them are also referring to another place in the Gospel of John, where Jesus uh, says, before Abraham was, I am. And that one especially shocked people because when Jesus said that, he was claiming to be Yahweh. The saying I am came from when God was calling Moses to go into Egypt. And Moses said, well, who am I gonna say sent me here? And God said, I am that I am, Yahweh. Tell them that I am sent you. And so when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, they wanted to kill him because he had blasphemed in their viewpoint. So every one of these sayings is a claim to divinity, and every one of these sayings is also a claim that Jesus is the one to meet the deepest needs of our hearts. And that's how it relates to you and me. Today we're gonna cover the last two of these I am sayings. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. Uh, Both of these point to the same reality, And both of these were delivered by Jesus in the same setting of his teaching, the same time of teaching. Let me tell you about that. On the night before Jesus was betrayed and before he was crucified, he was in an upper room with his disciples. He celebrated the fast Passover feast with his disciples there. And after that Passover feast, he starts to give to them his very last teaching. Now imagine that for a moment. They did not know it was the last time that Jesus would teach them. Jesus knew it was his last time to teach them. Can you imagine the weightiness in his own heart and life as he thought, this is my last time to speak to these 12 people I love so deeply and dearly and who will carry my message to the rest of the world. This is often called in John 14, 15, and 16, the upper room discourse. It could be called the final farewell message of a loving savior to his disciples. In this message, it's an amazing combination of both warnings and promises, challenges and comforts. And I'll just ask you as an aside before we get started here, does your version of Christianity have room for both warnings and promises? Does it have room for both challenges, commands, and comforts? The gospel of Jesus has both. 
We're gonna look at some of the key verses from John 14 and 15. So let me ask you to stand as we begin to read God's word together. We'll be reading from the New International Version. If you have this little insert, uh, points to remember, let me ask you perhaps if even if you're not a note taker, you might be able to follow the outline on the first panel. We'll help you track with where I'm going, though you'll see things on the screen. And there's also a lot of the passages on the second panel, though not all of it. As I read God's word to you today, let me ask you to really focus and listen, and here's the reason. Uh, what is taught here in John 14 and 15 does not go sequentially, it's woven all throughout, and therefore, after I read the scripture to you here, I'm not gonna go back and read this section and this section and the other section like I often do. I'll allude to it, I'll quote from it, but it's the only time we'll go through it verse by verse. So let me ask you to really give your attention, listen carefully, read carefully, and track along. Here's what Jesus says in his last message to his followers. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, one. I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And verses four and five are critical. Remain in me or abide in me or continue in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Lord, we ask you as we look at your word this morning that you would forgive the sins of the one on this stage, those sins are many. We ask you that you would, by your word and by your spirit, point us to Jesus, and we would see him today. We pray it in his name, amen. Thanks, be seated. You know, I'm not really sure uh, what impressions you have and what you thoughts you have of people like Randy Pope and myself and Jeff and Caleb and other ministers and preachers. Maybe you think that we're sort of immune from the struggles that everybody else goes through, that we're above such things. But let me assure you that that is definitely not the case. We have our ups and downs. In fact, in about year seven of my marriage to Morgan Ann and about year seven of our ministry together, we went through an experiential trough 
that was so deep in our lives that apart from the grace of God and the love and care of a good number of brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm quite convinced that we would have lost our ministry and perhaps we would have lost our marriage. The reason we were in a deep trough like that was exactly because of our failure, because of my failure to understand the truths of John 15. That's why we were there. And I would put it this way, for us, Jesus had become very small. The call of Jesus was big, the church of Jesus was big, the duties from Jesus were really big, but Jesus himself, he had become pretty small because he was in the rearview mirror, way behind us. In fact, I think we're not alone in this. I would have to say that probably every one of us in this room, I know for sure, everyone in this room will face the two dangers that are, the two great dangers for both of these, and they are these, the danger of making secondary things primary and the danger of the idolatry of self. There is not a person in this room that does not face those dangers. The idolatry of self and the problem, the danger of making secondary things primary. You know, sometimes this sort of idolatry of self parades itself in ways that are more vivid uh, than at other times. Not too long ago, I was walking through a bookstore not far from here. It wasn't our church bookstore. It was another bookstore. And as I walked through, here's what I saw. We have a, I took a picture of it. It says self-transformation. And the, when I saw this, I immediately thought to myself, self-help has had an upgrade, you know? <laughs> this used to be just called the self-help section of the bookstore, but that wasn't good enough. You can't just help yourself, now you have to transform yourself. Self-transformation, and so I started looking through a number of the books that were in this section, and I saw the promises of the authors for things like this. Quote, you can think your life into existence, and by that they meant you can think your preferred life into existence. Your imagination is God. Outside of man, there is no God, and that by evolving our brains, we can become supernatural. In fact, the book that talked about that in the, in, in the foreword or in the, in the preface of the book, it said, getting ready to become supernatural. Now, self-reliance doesn't always come that vividly stated. In fact, self-reliance and the idolatry of self can come dressed up in a lot of Christian language. In fact, the greatest enemy to true Christianity is Christian moralism pretending to be Christianity. Flannery O'Connor expressed this very well in one of her novels called Wise Blood, and in Wise Blood, there's a character named Hazel, and this is what she said about Hazel. Hazel realized that the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. That's Christian moralism. It's a way of saying, if I'm good enough, if I can improve myself enough, then I don't need the lordship of Jesus and I don't need the grace of Jesus. I can avoid all that uncomfortable Jesus-centeredness by myself. The idolatry of self can look a lot of different ways. It can look like any and all of these, self-centeredness, self-determination, self-help, self-transformation, self-actualization. In fact, you may not be aware of it, but the reigning philosophy in the history of philosophy that now has been gaining more and more traction in our culture and it's something that is given into our heads and thrust upon us a thousand ways every day. And especially if you're under 40 and especially if, if you're under 25, the world you live in keeps telling you this over and over again. 
And the message is this, what is sovereign in your life, what must be served are your desires. Your desires define who you are. And what is true for you and right for you may not be what is true and right for me. You find your truth, I'll find my truth. But our choices, our self-definition, our self-determination, that's God. That's God. And that really is the philosophy of existentialism, that our actions and our decisions create literally who we are. But in the midst of that, isn't it true, we still yearn for something eternal. We yearn for someone out there who is true and kind and powerful and loving. We want it with all of our hearts and souls. And I'll have to tell you, this passage points us to the better way of Jesus. Here's today's message in one sentence. I don't want you to miss it, so I'll put it in print and I'll put it into your notes. The life for which we are created is radically Jesus-centered from beginning to end. Let me say it again. The life for which we have been created is radically Jesus-centered from beginning to end. That's why Jesus talked to people who were hungry in their soul and he said, I'm the bread of life. And it's why he said to people who were thirsty for purpose, I'm the living water. It's why he said to people who had lost their way, I'm the light of the world. And it's why he said to people who felt unloved and rejected and vulnerable and helpless, I'm the good shepherd. That's why he said to people who felt absolutely dead on the inside, I'm the resurrection and the life. Today we're gonna to look at the last two of these seven I am sayings. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And I think maybe none of the other I am sayings quite so vividly say that the life for which we're created is radically Jesus-centered from beginning all the way to the end. And we're gonna look at four fast observations and even before the first one comes up on the screen, let me give you a preview of where we're going. We're gonna see in this passage today in John 14 and 15 that we are to begin with Jesus, we're to continue with Jesus. Fruitfulness is required and praise God, fruitfulness is promised. Let's take a look at those. First of all, we are to begin with Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus famously said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, we hear it said all the time, don't we? There are many ways to God. All religions lead to God. And Jesus said, nope, I am the only way to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. Now, how and why could Jesus say that? He said it because of the real story of the world. The world was created to be a good place and we were created in God's image to know him personally, but things went terribly wrong really fast when the idolatry of self worked it into the hearts of our forefathers and to us. We found ourselves in a pit of helplessness and separation from God and everything began to fall apart and so God devised a plan that was both a plan of justice and a plan of grace. And this plan of rescue of justice and grace was a plan that God the Son would become one of us and he would live a perfect sinless life that we cannot live and then on the cross he would die a substitutionary death bearing the sins with the penalty that we could not bear to carry ourselves and then God raised him from the dead and through that absolutely wonderful plan that we call the gospel, through that, the Bible says, God is both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. When it boils down to it, every other religious system of the world, every other non-religious system of the world boils down to be this, self-help, self-transformation, 
in self-justification. And every day, if you follow the news, you will see this way of living being put forth into you and me. Only the gospel weds together these three things, the power of God, the justice of God, and the grace of God. So that's why Jesus said, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We must begin with Jesus. And if you're today and you've never begun with Jesus at all, I hope that before you leave here today, you will say, I need what Jesus brings. Thank you, Jesus, for living for me, for dying for me, for being raised for me. I put my faith in you to change my life and satisfy my heart, and you'll be beginning with Jesus. Number two is this, we are to continue with Jesus. We're to continue with Jesus. This word abide means remain, it means to continue. Now, a lot of times when I've heard John 15 quoted, it's sort of like how people use Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through faith in Christ. And it means, you know, I've got an athletic competition or I've got a test I've got to take. And so I can do all things through Christ. I've heard people use John 15 the same way. You know, if I'm going to succeed and in life, I need to abide in Jesus. And there's no doubt that this passage is about our mystical union with Christ and living with him in a way that is really, can't be explained with words. But it's not about accomplishing the next little thing you want to accomplish in your life. Jesus is talking to these disciples and he knows that after his death, these men are going to be harassed and persecuted and tortured and put to death, most of them, for his sake. And he says here, don't fall away from me. You've started with me, don't stop. Continue in me, remain in me. Keep walking with me. And he says here, this is an absolutely vitally important issue because there's no life in you unless you're connected to me. This passage is not about just accomplishing some little thing in your life. This is a matter of life and death. There's no life in you unless you're connected to me. And Jesus says, yes, you started with me, now continue with me. I'll give you an illustration of starting and continuing. Uh, my dad was a, uh, a realtor, residential realtor and a home builder. I worked for his carpenter one summer and that was long enough for me to find out I'm not gifted as a carpenter. <laughs> I carried a lot of lumber, I went to get lunch, I loved, enjoying the, I loved uh, driving the truck. Uh, there were a lot of those kind of things but I wasn't too gifted as a carpenter. But I did find out uh, several things about building houses. I found out first of all that it's really important to have a good foundation. When the cement truck would show up, I, I and our crew would be some of the people waiting there with our shovels to help the guys on the cement truck get this wet cement put into place so the foundation will be exactly right. But I also found out that a foundation by itself is no good. And so other guys would come and lay the blocks and then we would start putting all the wood and timber on top of that because a foundation without a superstructure is no good. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the foundation of true Christianity and Jesus is the essence of every block, every brick, every piece of timber that goes on top of that. We start with Jesus, we continue with Jesus. Now this saying of Jesus, I'm the true vine and you're the branches and my father is the gardener, that has both a corporate meaning for all of us as the people of God and an individual meaning for us one by one, person by person. Let me explain both of those. What does it mean for us corporately, our identity as the people of God in the, God's plan of redemptive history? It means this, 
In the Old Testament, over and over again, Israel is called God's vine or God's vineyard. In Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Psalm 80, a lot of different places. Israel was God's vine or God's vineyard. Now, that's because when we hear this passage, well, that's a nice little analogy. But when the people that first heard Jesus say this, heard him say it, and he said, I am the true vine, they understood. He was saying, I am the true Israel. And interestingly enough, in every Old Testament passage where Israel is called God's vine or God's vineyard, it had to do with their failure, their failure to produce the fruitfulness that God expected them to produce. And because they failed to produce the fruitfulness he expected, judgment came. They were put aside like the branch that is put aside and cast into the fire. And so when Jesus says here, I'm the true Israel, what he is saying is, I'm the Israel that does not fail. I am the Israel who is obedient to the Father. I am the Israel who will bear fruit. And if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. And it was his way of saying, if you believe in me, you're part of the true Israel, the new Israel, the real Israel. Imagine a picture, if you would, that looks like a funnel. It starts big and it comes down to a very narrow point and then bronze again. The people of God could be described this way. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. And then through the judgment of God, the Babylonian captivity and other things, there was the remnant of Israel. But then the identity of Israel boils down to be one person, Jesus. And according to Matthew and according to John and according to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, Jesus is the the seed of Abraham. If we believe in him, we become the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the Israel that goes into Egypt and comes back again. Jesus is the one who spends 40 days in the wilderness like Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. And right here, Jesus is the true vine. And then all those who believe in Jesus are part of that vine, whether they're Jew or Gentile ethnically. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying here. It's the very same thing that the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 11 with a different picture. Paul said, Israel is like an olive tree. And those Jews that have believed in Jesus are like olive branches that stay in the tree. The Jews that don't believe in Jesus are like olive branches that are broken off and thrown away. And the Gentiles who believe in Jesus are like olive branches that are grafted in. That's the same picture here. So that's the meaning of this corporately. It's the meaning of this in God's plan of redemptive history, that those of us who belong to Jesus, we are the true Israel, we're the people of God. What does this mean for us individually? For me tomorrow and for you tomorrow and the way we live our lives, what does this really mean? And here it is. The Christian life is not only centered on Jesus in the beginning, it is centered on Jesus all the way to the end. Let me say that again. The Christian life is not just centered on Jesus in the beginning, it is centered on Jesus all the way to the end. Let me explain how Margaret Ann and I missed it for so many years, and it was basically my fault. We missed it because we had this way of thinking. I don't know how I got this way of thinking. I don't know if it was what I taught or only what I heard when I was taught better, but I had a a viewpoint that the Christian life was lived this way. That at the beginning of the Christian life, for being justified and forgiven of your sins and being reconciled to God, that is about Jesus and about grace and about the cross. And then growing in your Christian life and doing ministry to other people, that's about the Holy Spirit and about the law and about discipline. And Jesus and grace and the cross were in the rearview mirror. 
That's how Jesus became so small to us. During that period of time, and there was a lot of negative fallout in our lives and hearts because we didn't get this, a lot of different things. A good friend suggested that we go to a conference and we went to it, and it was basically a study of the book of Galatians. And interestingly enough, that previous year, I had done a read through the Bible in a year thing, and I'd skipped Galatians because I thought, I know what Galatians is about. Galatians is about justification by grace through faith. I don't need that. I'll skip it. So we show up at this thing and these people start teaching through Galatians. And I realize, oh yeah, Galatians is about sanctification by grace through faith too. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is involved and God's law is involved and discipline is involved, but you can't get away from Jesus and grace and the cross. And the real kicker was on the third day of the conference, it was Monday through Friday, on Wednesday, if I remember correctly, we're sitting in the back row and Margaret Ann leans over to me and she whispers, is all this right and true? I said, yeah, this is all true. She said, I've never heard this before. Now the problem is not only had I been Margaret Ann's husband for 10 years, I'd been her preacher for 10 years. (laughs) I've never heard this before. And the reason she had never heard it before is that it really wasn't that important to me and it wasn't understood by me. And we'd been missing it. Jesus had become small. We'd moved away from being centered on Jesus to being centered on a lot of other Christian things. I've quoted from uh, Francis Schaeffer's book, True Spirituality, three or four times in the last 15 or 16 years with you here, but that won't keep me from doing it again. Notice what Francis Schaeffer says in his book, True Spirituality. I became a Christian once for all upon the basis of the finished work of Christ through faith. That is justification. The Christian life sanctification operates on the same basis, but moment by moment. There is the same base, Christ's work, and the same instrument, faith. The only difference is that one is once for all and the other is moment by moment. If we try to live the Christian life in our own strength, we'll have sorrow. But if we live in this way, we'll not only serve the Lord, but in place of sorrow, he will be our song. That is the difference. The how of the Christian life is the power of the crucified and risen Lord through the agency of the indwelling Holy Spirit by faith, moment by moment, amen. We begin with Jesus, we continue with Jesus, a radically Jesus-centered life. The third observation from this passage is this, fruitfulness is required. Don't miss this, fruitfulness is required. Look at verses one and two and verses five and six of John 15, you'll see them on the screen. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, my father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. Verse five, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Every person who heard Jesus say this originally remembered the story of the Old Testament that Israel before the Babylonian captivity had been fruitless and had received God's judgment. They understood, you gotta bear fruit. Now the interesting thing of this passage is this, and I won't read through the whole thing, but you reread it later and you'll see the connection. Jesus says, you have to be fruitful. Fruitfulness equals obeying my commands, and obeying my commands equals loving one another. 
Let me say that again. Fruitfulness equals obeying my commands. And my commands can be boiled down to this. Love one another and love people who are in need. If you start looking at the rest of the teachings of Jesus, you will see this is what he says and this is what he does over and over and over and over again. He ministers to the people who were counted to be the most sinful, the outcast, the marginalized. He ministered to those who were not Jewish, they were Gentile, and all the Jewish leaders said, no, there's no way you should love those people. And over and over again, his actions of love said, this is what counts. And when Jesus taught about love, what did he say? In John 13, he said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And in that statement, he was giving the world the right to conclude that we don't know Jesus if we don't love each other. Jesus was challenged as what it means to love your neighbor. That's a summary of commands five through 10 of the 10 commandments to love your neighbor. And this is the way Jesus summarized five out of the 10 commandments. In fact, six out of the 10 commandments. He said it this way, love is meeting the needs of a person, the physical needs of a person who is of a race that you would expect to hate them and hate what they would hate to expect to hate you. That's what love is. You find those that have been beaten up and bloodied. They need somebody to pick up that bloody body and take care of it and take it to be healed. And you do that to the person you would not expect to do it to because you're of a different race and your races hate each other. That's the kind of thing Jesus talked about. Jesus said at the end of time, there's gonna be a separation of those that know God and those that don't, the sheep and the goats. How are you gonna know the difference between the sheep and the goats, Jesus said? Here's the deal. Those who are the sheep, those who belong to me, they have loved other people by giving water to those who are thirsty and bread to those who are hungry and putting clothes on the back of those who are naked and visiting people in prison. And it doesn't matter if they deserve to be in that prison or not. You go and you help them. And in a very radical way, Jesus says this, here's what it means to belong to me. Here is fruitfulness, love, love. Israel, yes, they were judged because of their idolatries and the gods they served included acts of sexual version. Yes, they were judged because they were not alike to the Gentiles and they thought they were better than others and they didn't get it. But in a huge way, they were judged because they failed to love. They failed to love. In fact, we're gonna see this in Isaiah, in Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5, we see this picture of Israel being God's vineyard. Here's what it says, 5.1. I will sing for the one I love, God that is, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Verse five, now I'll tell you what I'm gonna to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its walls and it will be trampled. A reference to the Babylonian captivity. Verse seven, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And get this, and he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. They were judged because of they failed to care for their brothers and sisters who suffered injustice. They ignored the distress of the needy. They failed to love. And here's the truth. 
Fruitfulness is required. Fruitfulness is obeying his command. His command is love one another. Francis Schaeffer not only wrote the book True Spirituality, he wrote another book that was called The Mark of the Christian. And in that book, The Mark of the Christian, he talked about the need for us to love one another with an observable love the world can see. In 2005, Dr. Timothy George from Beeson Divinity School and Dr. John Woodbridge from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School wrote a book together. It pretty much is based upon Schaefer's book and it's called The Mark of Jesus. If you can get this book, I'd advise you to get it. It's out of print, but if you can get it, it's great. The Mark of Jesus by Timothy George and John Woodbridge. And this is what Dr. George and Dr. Woodbridge have said. Schaefer has summarized well what this teaching of Christ means for us in practical terms. We as Christians are called upon to love all men as neighbors, loving them as ourselves. Second, that we're to love all the Christian brothers in a way that the world may observe. This means showing love to our brothers in the midst of our differences, great or small. Loving our brothers when it costs us something. Loving them even under times of tremendous emotional tension. Loving them in a way the world can see. In short, we're to practice and exhibit the holiness of God and the love of God. For without this, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gives Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may, we, may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and Jesus was sent by the Father. Amen. We're to begin with Jesus. We're to continue with Jesus. Fruitfulness is required. But here is the good news. Fruitfulness is promised. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. Here's the good news that what Jesus requires, Jesus supplies. The branch doesn't have to produce the sap that produces the fruit. The branch simply carries the life-giving sap. It simply carries the fruit-producing sap. It is produced back in the vine. My friends, if you and I remain in Jesus, if we live radically Jesus-centered lives, you know what will happen? He will live through us and he will love through us. And through us, we will bear this fruit of loving in a way the world could never see. You may be saying, Bob, you don't know my story. You don't know how I've been hurt by people who are different from me. I can't love them. You don't know my story of how I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I detest those who need help because I didn't get it and I didn't need it. And the gospel of Jesus comes and says, no, you're to love people that think your religion is terrible. You're to love people who think your Christian morality is terrible. You're to love people that look different from you and smell different from you and act different from you and believe different from you. You're to love people who look like they've all, all got it, they got it all together. You're to love people whose lives are absolutely 100% a mess, though they won't admit it. And you're to love them because I've loved you. In Psalm 80, we see another passage where Israel is called God's vineyard. But this passage has the good news of a savior that turns everything around. Look at verses 16 through 18 of Psalm 80. Your vine is cut down, it's burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand, here's the solution, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you've raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us 
and we will call on your name. Our forgiveness is found in Jesus, the Son of Man. Our transformation is found in Jesus, the Son of Man. Our ability to love other people that we can't naturally love is found in Jesus, the Son of Man. Fruitfulness is required, but fruitfulness is always supplied. Let me ask you this, what about you? Is your life, is your heart radically Jesus-centered? I was with a group of pastors a couple of weeks ago and we didn't all know each other very well so we began to introduce ourselves and tell our story. And one fellow told this story. He grew up in a church here in North Atlanta, not our church, but another church here. And he said, I've never really heard the gospel of grace there. I went off to college and I encountered campus outreach and that's where I heard the gospel and I received Christ. And I became really uh, just enthused about sharing the gospel and defending the Christian faith and especially talking with people that had intellectual concerns about it. So much so, he said that I went to seminary to get a degree in what's called apologetics, defending the faith. And while he was there getting a degree in apologetics, one of his professors that he loved and admired and respected said, uh, Joe, I want you to come by my office this afternoon. And Joe went by saying, oh boy, we're gonna talk about apologetics. I'm gonna love this. He went into the professor's office and said this professor had a huge, huge wooden desk that he used, or table that he used as a desk. And Joe sat down in a chair that was near the door and the professor brought his chair all the way around that big table and put his chair down next to Joe so that they were almost knee to knee and eyeball to eyeball. And Joe said, I was very uncomfortable at this point. <laughs> and the professor looked him in the eye and said, Joe, do you love Jesus? And Joe gave him the Sunday school answer. Oh yeah, I love Jesus, da, 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 da. And the professor let Joe talk. And then we stopped talking. He looked at him again, leaned in a little more closely and said, Joe, do you love Jesus? And Joe started weeping. Because Joe realized he loved defending Jesus. He loved explaining Jesus. He loved the strokes he got for being smart about Jesus. He loved his pleasures and his intellect and the approval all that gave him. But all those things had taken the place of Jesus. Let me ask you this, has something taken the place of Jesus in your heart? The truth of the matter is Jesus is to be in the center and if Jesus is in the center, there are all kinds of other things that God calls us to love to the appropriate degree and in the appropriate way. But life goes off the rails if any of these things become this thing. If a secondary thing becomes the primary thing, it's not what God made us to live for. It's not how he made us to live. A lot of these things can be put in the middle. It could be the church that takes the place of Jesus. It can be evangelism that takes the place of Jesus. It can be discipleship that takes the place of Jesus. It can be right doctrine that takes the place of Jesus. It can be your family. It can be your work. It can be social justice. It can be trying to recover an America you remember in your mind from decades ago. It can be a lot of things that could be good things, but none of those things are made to be the central thing. The gospel, real Christianity, your life, my friend, was designed to be radically Jesus-centered from beginning to end. You know, a lot of these uh, I am sayings of Jesus came with miracles. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, and he feeds 5,000 people with just a little bit of food. He said, I'm the light of the world, and he heals a man who's blind. He says, I'm the resurrection of life, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. What's the miracle here? 
I think the miracle is what Jesus alluded to when he was having that Passover meal. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this, this bread is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And the miracle of this saying, I think, is his death and resurrection. Think of the power of his death and resurrection. It is what transforms us. It is what forgives us. Jesus loved us enough to pay the ultimate price for our failure to love. And he loved us enough to pay the ultimate price to enable us to love. You, my friend, if you belong to Jesus, you are in union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Put your faith in that bloody cross and put your faith in that empty tomb and you will be changed. At the end of the second panel of our points to remember, there are some questions for you to consider through this week. One is, what have I put in the place of Jesus? The second is, who are the brothers, sisters, and neighbors whom I failed to love? And I would want to add two more. Do I believe that Jesus can forgive me for my failure to love? That is the gospel. If you come here today like me, a failure in loving, there is forgiveness in Jesus. And the last question I would add is this. Do I believe that Jesus can love through me and bear this fruit of love through me. That, my friends, is also the promise of the gospel. I'll end with this question. What would it look like if we began to live this out together as a church? I think we'd see four things. The world would see us loving each other in a radical, observable way. The world would see us love all other Christians and all these other churches in a radical and observable way. The, love would see, the world would see us loving all people no matter their circumstances, in a radical and observable way. And lastly, they would know it's not because those people at Perimeter are so good. It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. And he would get all the praise and glory. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do thank you and bless you that you are this kind of Savior. When we have been just like Israel of old, not bearing fruit, unfaithful to you, chasing after other gods, not loving our brothers and sisters and taking care of their needs. Yet you forgive us. You make us one with you, Lord Jesus, and your obedience becomes ours and your payment for sin becomes our justification and your power to love innocent through us becomes our love. Oh, Lord Jesus, may our lives bear the fruit that gives glory to you. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Couldn't imagine a better summation of where we've been or a better introduction to where we're about to go. In these I am statements of Jesus, we're getting a picture. We're getting this glorious picture of the one that God sent for the salvation of the world. And I want you to notice, I didn't say pictures, I said picture singular. Because each one of those phrases on their own, they're not enough to capture the glory of Jesus. But as each flows into the other, each one building on the last, we are given this gloriously beautiful picture of a sufficient Savior who has been sent for the salvation of the world. And it's a picture, it's a picture that God gives for this one reason. As John says throughout the entirety of his gospel, that we would believe. It's a picture of a living and present Jesus who even now offers himself to you and who asks for a response. We're about to respond as a congregation. 
to each one of these statements of Jesus about who he is. But as we do, I wanna call your attention to something. In your bulletin, you'll notice there's a bookmark in there. Uh, that bookmark has the affirmation of faith that we're about to read together. And we want you to have that, to put in your Bible, put it on your fridge, do whatever, so that these truths, as Paul said, these Jesus-centered, glorious gospel truths uh, would remain with you even after we're finished here today. Let's turn our attention to the screen and let's read this together. Jesus, you are the bread of life. We are satisfied in you alone. Jesus, you are the light of the world. We see truth in you alone. Jesus, you are the door of the sheep. We are saved in you alone. Jesus, you are the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We find refuge in you alone. Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. We are restored in you alone. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. We know the Father in you alone. Jesus, you are the vine. We bear fruit in you alone. Jesus, you are the I am. We trust in you alone. Let's stand, let's worship our great God. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.